Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. This is Luke Kincaid, and I get to preach for us from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. And I'll read verses 4 through 5 for us now, as we prepare to celebrate all that God did during our week of family VBS. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This week, as you heard earlier, one of the big truths we learned was that Jesus's power helps us do hard things. So good. And kids, I'm going to say that five more times throughout my sermon. So you should be counting. And when I say it, make sure you say the trust Jesus. So as you follow along, you can count them with me there. So today, we're going to revisit one of the stories from VBS, this story of Ananias and Saul. It was the one we used on the very first day of VBS, and Saul visited a couple of times throughout VBS for our kids. And if trusting Jesus is our goal or destination, then my hope today is that we can build some tracks for our train to run on to get to that destination. The Acts 9 passage that Ashley read just a minute ago was that first story. And in this story, we get to meet two important characters, Saul and Ananias. But first, let me back up a little bit and tell you what happened right before this story. Right before Acts 9 in chapter 8, you get to learn about an amazing moment in the life of another follower of Jesus named Philip. We learned about a really cool moment for him where he got to tell a man who was visiting Jerusalem from Ethiopia. He got to tell him about Jesus. And he ended up getting to baptize him. And this was exciting. The gospel was spreading, just as it was foretold in the beginning of Acts. And if the book of Acts ended right there after chapter 8, it would leave you at a moment where trusting God had never looked so exciting and enticing. Who wouldn't want to be a part of life change and cool moments where new people are coming to know Jesus. However, next comes chapter nine, which begins with a word that we don't often like hearing because it means there's a catch, a reminder. Maybe don't get too excited yet. It says, but Saul. That little conjunction, that word but, draws a sharp uh, contrast to what just happened in chapter eight and what is about to be said in chapter nine. For you kids, this is like when your parents say, you can have a treat, but you got to finish your dinner. A little bit of a bummer. Or, but you got to clean your room first. Extra bummer. So Acts 9.1 says this again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Oh no, things were going so well. I thought we had gotten past the persecution of the church that had happened at the beginning of chapter 8. I thought God was ready to just let the gospel spread and grow and do wonderful things. But Saul was breathing threats and murder. Saul was so angry and worked up about these people who claimed that Jesus was their true king and high priest that it consumed him to the point that it was as natural as breathing. He was going to see that these disciples of Jesus were punished, imprisoned, and even put to death. In other words, God's train was picking up steam in chapter 8. All of a sudden, it hit a big hill or a fork in the tracks. And for many, it may have even derailed their faith 
or cause them to question their trust in God. And I think this is important because trusting God is easier, right? When things are going well, when people are being converted and baptized, I'll sign up for that. But what about those moments or seasons in life where your expectations of God are disrupted? Something unexpected and frustrating happens. What are your but saw moments? I know all of us have experienced this on some level in the past 18 months because no one saw a pandemic or the sickness as we tell our kids um, because it came out of nowhere. Now, all things considered, my family, we had it pretty easy in the pandemic because my two girls are not in elementary school yet. Mackenzie's going to start kindergarten, but neither of them had to face virtual school. And my parents, they live right here in town. My sister's here this morning. She lives in town as well. And so whenever we needed help or to do some work without Mackenzie and Finley, we could ship them over to Nana Camp. And it was really wonderful for us. However, for me, I faced a new medical challenge I had never encountered before. Last year, I woke up one night in the middle of the night with some weird chest pain that wouldn't go away. I had no idea what, what it was and I walked around for a while. I laid down in different positions and ended up going to the ER at 2 a.m. I had to wake up my parents. Hey, can you come over? I'm having chest pain. Can you watch the girls while Lex takes me to the ER? They ran some tests and they couldn't find anything, so they sent me home. However, the chest pain continued and it would come and go, but kept persisting for over the next week. So I started seeing doctors and went down the GI route, had an endoscopy, and they found that I had some mild acid reflux from gastritis. And uh, I took some, started taking some medicine and it helped a little bit, but it didn't all go away. So next I went to a cardiologist to check on my heart and after a stress test, everything seemed fine there. So in the end, the pain was most likely due to some of that acid reflux, but also some anxiety induced pain. Now, this was strange for me because I'm a pretty happy guy. If you come to know me, I, I come from the camp of Billy Pulliam out there who doesn't tend to get very bummed and definitely an optimist. I like to think glass half full rather than glass half empty. For those who like the Enneagram personality test, I'm a seven, which means I like adventure, but I also don't do well with pain. I knew anxiety was something a lot of people wrestle with. And of course, I'd been stressed out before or you know, been tired or had headaches from stress, but I'd never had this level of pain before. And I had this dull pain in my chest for months that would not fully go away. For me, the idea that something could be seriously wrong was scary. I never had to think about trusting in Jesus while wrestling with these kinds of anxious thoughts and feelings. This was a but-saw, disruptive moment for me where the idea of trusting Jesus became a little more complicated or confusing because I didn't know why something was happening. So what is it for you in your life? What are the things that cause you to struggle to trust in Jesus? I'm sure we've had these moments over the pandemic and maybe even the new CDC's recommendations to bring back mass in certain places starts to push you to say things like, really God? Or haven't we endured enough? Or God, are you really in control? When I worked in student ministry, I heard a lot of students talk about God's silence, which Dale spoke on, and unaccomplished goals as big tests. Maybe for you it's an intellectual hurdle. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's a negative past experience at church even. For my girls, Mackenzie and Finley, uh, it's things like having to share 
or disappointments that they don't get what they want and it can push them away from trusting Jesus. So if we really want to live out the big truth of VBS that says Jesus's power helps us do hard things, so good. That's number two. Then I hope to give us some tracks to run on to help guide us in that right direction. How can we trust Jesus even as the circumstances of life or the voices of others or the signs of change start to create doubt or fear or imbalance in our lives? I think God has a lesson for us in this story of Saul and Ananias. And I want to first look at their respective responses to Jesus. Both hear the voice of Jesus, very clearly it seems like, but there's a subtle difference in the response that helped give us, I think, the key to unlock what it means to trust Jesus. So let me reread their responses. First in verses four and five, it says, in falling to the ground, this is Saul, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then later, Ananias in verse 10, this is his response when Jesus talks to him. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. As I was studying these, who are you, Lord? Here I am, Lord. I was intrigued that they both use that word Lord. Because it's very clear, Ananias knows Jesus differently than Saul at this moment. Their relationship is much different. The way they view Jesus is much different. And Saul is not actually following Jesus yet. In the original language of the New Testament, this word for Lord is, it's, it's called kurios. And one commentator, as I was thinking about this, I liked how she wrote about this. Her name is Beverly Roberts Gaventa, and she says this. Saul addresses the speaker as kurios, which may signify either the worshipful Lord or simply the polite sir. Because the question itself indicates that Saul does not know the identity of the one who has spoken, it seems that the latter definition is implied. In other words, you could translate Saul's response as, who are you, sir? He's just being polite, showing good manners. You know, he knows the Old Testament enough that a voice speaking is some powerful being that he should probably be respectful of him. Just like we tell our kids, if an adult asks you to do something, you say, yes, sir, or no, ma'am. That's what Paul's response is. Now, on the other hand, Ananias' response, which is the same response that great men of faith like Isaac, Samuel, and Isaiah used before him is, here I am, Lord. And he is definitely using the worshipful version of that word, Lord. He is definitely using it from an understanding that this is Jesus who rose from the dead and is fully God. It is worshipful. This is because Ananias doesn't just respect Jesus. He reveres Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting that Ananias, he still pushes back, if you remember back there in that story a little bit. And I think it's okay because what Jesus asks us to do is not always easy. So it's okay to be confused at times. But like Ananias, reverence means that we believe God's plans are the best. And so I will listen and follow knowing that God must be up to something good, even if I don't know what that is going to lead to. Reverence involves veneration and devotion in a worshipful manner. Respect, you can admire somebody, but it does not worship. 
You can respectfully decline or respectfully disagree, but you don't reverently decline. Those don't go together. So in order, <clears throat> excuse me, in order for us to truly embrace this VBS lesson, that Jesus' power helps us do hard things, so... Yes, Jesus! Glad you're still listening. That's three. Then we have to move from respecting Jesus to revering Jesus. Or put another way, trusting Jesus requires us to move from respect to reverence. It moves Jesus from simply riding in the first class of my train to me riding on the train that Jesus is conducting. Now what is really neat is that we get to see this start to happen in the life of Saul in this passage. It gives us a couple practical lessons that I believe apply to all of us as we seek to let Jesus become the true conductor of our lives. So for the rest of the time, I just want to spend pulling out a couple things about what it means to revere Jesus from this passage. If reference involves a willing submission to the leading of Jesus, then I think there's a couple lessons to teach all of us that lead towards a deeper trust in him. And we don't have time to hit everything, but I'm just pulling a couple things that jumped out to me as I studied this past week. Now, the first thing that I noticed that reverence requires is confession. Let me look back at Acts 9, 1 through 5. And as I read these verses, try to put yourself in Saul's shoes and think about what it must have felt like for Saul in this ultimate come to Jesus moment for him. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This moment for Saul is the moment where he had to come to grips with the fact that he was persecuting the true Messiah, which interesting enough was the idea he was trying to protect as a Jewish man, he absolutely believed in the coming Messiah, knew what that meant. But he thought Jesus was a fraud. And these followers of Jesus were going to mess everything up. So he was trying to stop this talk. He had literally, just a few chapters earlier, approved of Stephen's execution. And then, this moment, Jesus says, I am Jesus. This moment where he had to admit that Jesus was the Messiah must have been very deflating and difficult for Saul in that moment. You know, the word used for confess in the New Testament literally means to say the same thing. So it does have the traditional meaning of admitting where you're wrong, but it also can mean acknowledging what is right. So I think Saul was truly humbled in this moment and had to wrestle with what it means that Jesus was actually alive. He had to confess that he was wrong, had led to people's deaths, and those disciples were actually right. I think for all of us, this means that we have to hold our opinions and preferences loosely and be humble enough to realize that we may be wrong about our understanding of ourselves or even some things about God. I think this means we need to be quick to confess and slow to dig our heels in because we might actually be wrong. I think this means we need to lead listening to God's word because God may be trying to show us, me, a blind spot. 
It took a blinding light to get Saul to see the truth. But I believe true reverence to Jesus means we are humble enough to admit how easy it is for us to go astray and thus should not be surprised when God corrects us. During my experience of anxiety, I had to confess that I'm not as firm or as even keeled as I thought. I've had to do some listening and some accepting of things where I thought I knew what was best, but in reality, I was wrong. I had to confess that in some ways I was simply respecting Jesus from a distance because things were going well. But I wasn't revering him and listening to him in the good and the bad. Reverence involves confession. And this could look like moving from respect to reverence for the first time, or it may look like surrendering just one particular part of your life that you're still holding on to. So wherever you are, I hope you'll be willing to take this step of confession, which will set you on a path toward reverence and opening yourself up to Jesus' power that can help us do hard things. So, Jesus! Good. Now, the second thing that I believe Jesus makes clear to Saul and to all of us as we move from respect to reverence is a need for consistent community. So let me read just a few more verses after the passage um, that Ashley read earlier. This is verses 17 through 19. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house. He went and found Saul. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. God forced Saul to receive the help from Ananias. Saul was literally blind and was unable to see until Ananias came and laid hands on him. What an interesting moment this must have been where just a few days later, Saul would have arrested this man. And now Ananias is there laying hands on him, commissioning him to the work of the Lord. Saul was put in a position of extreme dependence, which must have been humbling and a clear message from God. You can't and won't do this alone. Ananias even calls him brother Saul to say welcome to the family. You are in this with us and you have been welcomed into a community that cares for each other and works to expand God's kingdom. And then if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you'll notice Saul in all of his journeys is never alone. He's got companions. He's got consistent support from those, from people around him, disciples all over the place. He ministered to people and shared life with people to create a lasting and impactful community. And I believe the same is true for us. Recently, we've been saying a lot here at the chapel that community is our middle name. And I love that that is part of our identity here at the chapel. I grew up here. The community here at the chapel is one of the reasons why Alexis and I want to stay here in Williamsburg. But we've also realized that true biblical community also takes hard work and constant submission to God to create and sustain. However, when done right, it will help each of us move from a relationship with God based on simple respect to reverence as you find people to challenge you and redirect you back to God and his plan. One of the things um, I really enjoy just personally um, is thinking about statistics 
I was a systems engineering major in undergrad and I love statistics. I think they're fascinating. I think gathering data is a powerful way to understand God's movement and see God's plan unfolding in the world. In relation to this idea of consistency, I recently found a Barna study that has been tracking how Americans relate to Christianity over the past 20 years. And you can go ahead and put the chart up. I think you guys have it. So this is from year 2000 to 2020. In 2000, about 80% of Americans in America identified as Christians. But then in 2020, that number was 68%. Interesting. A little sad to hear that the total percentage of people has gone down in the past 20 years. However, what I find even more interesting was how Barna's group goes on to create two subcategories within the Christian category. They split everyone that said they were Christian, self-identified, into two categories. One, practicing Christians, and then two, non-practicing Christians. So they both said they were Christian, but one was practicing, one was non-practicing. I'll define them in a moment. In 2000, of those 80% who said they were Christians, 45% of them, of the Christians, were practicing, and 35% were non-practicing. So 80% of the country was Christian, 45% of that said they were, they were in the practicing category, 35% in non-practicing. In 2020, you know, we've dropped down to 68% of America Christians. Only 25% of the Christians were practicing. And 43% are non-practicing of that 68%. You can see on the graph how the two lines have switched over the past 20 years. Only a quarter of Americans, according to this study, are actively engaging with their faith regularly. Furthermore, the way Barna defines what practicing Christian means, you just had to put on there, I find my faith is a very important thing and I've gone to church at least once in the past month. So even among practicing Christians, all you had to do was say you've gone to church once in the last month. To me, that is so sad. Not simply because I think church attendance is the answer to everything, but because that means most Christians, more than that, most people in America are not experiencing true biblical community. I want everyone to know what it is like to have a group of people that can revere Jesus alongside you, encourage you, challenge you, deepen your understanding of the Bible. And I truly believe that without this type of community, then Jesus becomes a person you respect enough to check a Christian box on a survey or tithe once in a while. But that respect won't rise to the level of reverence where Jesus is a part of your everyday life and decision making. My family, uh, we're part of a small group here at the chapel, and I consider it a true blessing to have them in my life. Our kids have become good friends. God has used them to help Alexis and I become better parents, better spouses. God has used this group to make food for us when we couldn't make it for ourselves. God has used this group to provide Holy Spirit joy in my life. God has used this group to help my family partner with local organizations and serve in the community. And God has used this group to pray for me as I wrestled with my chest pain over the past year. Now, yes, it is a great group, but I'll be honest, it was and still is not easy. It took Alexis and I about three or four years to even get in a small group. And we're on staff here at the chapel at this point. Then everyone in our group started having kids to the point where we have like 18 kids in our group, which has meant we have to try and figure out babysitters and figure out how to find a space that is large enough for our kids to play while the adults try to have a conversation for a little while. Then if we want to actually share a meal together, that is a lot of food and it'll only get more as the kids get older. 
We haven't always had consistent attendance from everyone in the group. So it hasn't always been easy, but it has been worth it. And if I'm honest, I think it has been necessary for us to move from simply respecting Jesus to revering Jesus in our lives. It has been necessary for us to to be able to embrace the truth of VBS, that Jesus's power helps us do hard things. So, good job. So if you're not in a small group, I challenge you to join one. Commit to consistent community when we launch them this fall. Dale's got a plan to get them launched and I'm excited for that. In closing, let's remember that trusting Jesus requires us to move from respect to reverence, which involves humble confession and consistent community. Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, you have shown up in some amazing ways this past week. Your power has been on display as we've run around, as we've done skits, as we've sung songs, as we've seen kids laugh and run and do motions and yell, trust Jesus louder than you'll ever hear. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Lord, we confess that we fall short. We confess that we need help, that we make mistakes, that we, especially when things are going good, think it's all because of me. And Lord, we confess and admit and acknowledge we need you in the good and the bad. Lord, I am so grateful for this community. It's only reinforced it this past week in my mind. Lord, provide people for each of us here in this room and online and in this community that can come alongside them to encourage them, challenge them, pray with them. Lord, we need help from you and from others. Thank you for what you did through Saul and Ananias. And thank you for how you are using this church to support local ministries, to care for those in our lives, and to grow up the next generation to love and know you. Lord, we pray, we thank you, and we are grateful for all these things. We just pray all of them in your wonderful and holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are ready to help get you connected to Christ and his community. Have a blessed day.